You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. It's the Bedroom Beethoven Podcast. Whoa, you just blew my mind because nobody talks about that shit. <laughs> Thank you for this. Like, I was looking forward to this chat, man. I love your interviews. I thank you for what you're doing. Like, it's excellent. And um, people can continue to learn the stories of, the, of these uh, bedroom Beethoven's. Um, how did you find out about this? Are you? Oh, my God. Having something like this to shed light on, on, on us is amazing. Like, we really need this documentation. So people like you are definitely needed. <laughs> Welcome, friend. Hope 2020 is treating you well. My guest this week is... Uh, my name is uh, Ramble Crone. I make records under RJD2. I have produced solo albums, uh, records uh, with the group Soul Position. I've done a record with STS as a rapper. I've got another group called Icebird with Aaron Livingston. I'm sure I'm forgetting there's all types of bits and bobs and beats that I had remixes. And that is in no way comprehensive. And my apologies to uh, any of the other folks that I didn't happen to mention. RJD2 is a very interesting guy. It's such a treat to have him on this podcast. But what I will say is his music combines disparate elements to make soulful, moody portraits of the world. R.I.P. Phase 2, the legendary graffiti writer, we chat about the Def Jux days. And like his new album, this podcast goal is to exist to share knowledge, passion, and happiness in order to create meaningful connections worldwide. Remember guys, as I continue to move forward with more and more episodes, please support the show if you enjoy what I do. BedroomBeethovens.com is the website, and there I have t-shirts for everybody. High quality, custom designs, not too expensive, and I have enough to go around for everyone. There is a merch tab at the top, and don't forget Patreon.com slash BedroomBeethovens so you can support the show directly, and please, please enjoy the YouTube channel, Twitter, and everywhere else you can keep up with what I'm doing. And remember, music is a vessel. The most important part is what it holds. Bedroom Beethoven's RJD2. Let's start the show. But it's about time for the cycle to start over. Well, I had your old buddy. Kari Martin on the on the podcast a few months back. I love Kari, man. That guy is so good. He's like he's so positive, man. He really just he makes you feel good about being alive, man. He's a cool dude. 
It's infectious. It really is, man. He's got a super positive attitude. I love it. I, I couldn't help with that relationship with him and SDS, though, because they ended up doing an album together this year. If that working relationship kind of stemmed from you. <laughs> I think it's a little bit the other way around. I think they, if I remember correctly, I think they knew each other before they knew, before I knew Slim. And I knew of Slim. You know, I was familiar with him, his, him as an MC, being around Philly and stuff. And, but my recollection is when we did See You Leave, which was a song on More Is Than Isn't, this, this my solo record from 2013, I want to say, um, I was the one who hit Kari and said, hey, man, you think we could get Slim on this track? And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Boom, 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 boom. And they sent the track back, like, I don't know, 48 hours later. And I was like, geez, you guys are fast. So, yeah. forget that you kind of had a helping hand in changing hip-hop forever you are part of Def Jux and I'm sure you heard of the untimely death of phase two unfortunately I did I did that was sad first off thank you for the kind words I don't know if I would say changing hip-hop but uh you know we we played one one minor role in uh, what you would consider underground hip-hop from the late 90s into the the aughts the mid early and mid aughts. I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but you know, as a, as a musician, when I think about mortality, uh, you know, a big part of making records for me is, uh, to be totally frank, it's about leaving behind a catalog and a thing that, that can in theory is immortal. I honestly think that this is whether most musicians know it or not. I think that this is a big part of the allure of making music is uh, you can at least convince yourself that you are making something that could potentially be timeless and live on forever. So, you know, as it uh, relates to any artist uh, and their, you know, their passing, you know, I feel a, a number of ways about it. You know, I've had close people pass away and I've, you know, I've had strangers who made art, that severely impacted me pass away. And I've personally found I'm, I'm at a place now where it's a little bit hard for me to completely lament it. Cause I also feel like, wow, that's, you know, I was lucky to experience that person's art and that person was lucky to be able to share their art with the world. Yeah. LP posted a flyer the other day from the Bowery ballroom. It's a show you did 17 years ago where you were labeled the captain. Aesop rock was the general and Mers was the field marshal. And Field was spelled wrong, which I love. It's endearing because you could tell it was all done on a shoestring budget where it was all one guy. I love it. And, and you know, it, I saw that flyer. It's funny you met, you're, you're bringing up that flyer. I saw that flyer, and it was one of those things where I remember the flyer I, I, from the, you know, at the time. And I remember it being a big deal that he did that flyer. But that period of my life was really just kind of a whirlwind in many ways. I'd say from 2001 to, I don't know, 2006, 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there, I, I, everything was kind of just a blur. You know, I have recollections, but it wasn't until, it's funny you mentioned that moment, because just this week, looking back on that flyer was when it all kind of hit me, 
that that flyer actually in, in some ways is I'll just say it was a bigger deal than I thought it was at the time. It, it does. I, I, I want to unpack that blur because there's this meme going around. In fact, Q-Tip just posted on his social media where he states that you have to destroy the idea that you have to be constantly working or grinding in order to be successful. And if you ask me, I disagree with that a thousand percent. And it seems that the only people that say that are the ones who are already on the other side of success because today – I am bringing the story of RJD to someone who achieved his 10,000 hours at a relatively young age from vocational high school to staying in on Friday nights, sacrificing a social life to excel at your craft. And if I had to guess why you're successful, I would have to go against Q-Tip's ideology and say, if you dedicate yourself that hard, that focused, then discipline absolutely means freedom in your case. (laughs) I, I think that I can see it from both sides of the of the coin. And, and I, and I will say that Q-Tip is a guy who already put in his 10,000 hours and, and then some, I mean, he, you know, if you look at what they achieved as a group from 89 till, I don't know, 97 or so, I think at that point in time, yeah. And then he went on and he did, he did amplified and all the other stuff after that. Um, I mean, the guys worked his ass off. And, And I, so I, when I hear a quote, that's a tr- that quote attributed to him. Honestly, I kind of reinterpret it as him speaking about his own lot in the music industry, and, and probably more specifically speaking to the fact that he's saying, "I don't have to put out a record every two years now because I I put my time in." But I think you are right. You know, I I think that to achieve what most people would consider success. It's hard, if not impossible to do if you aren't almost singularly driven is, is it might be overstating it, but almost everybody I know that's still making music or has built some kind of catalog that is allowing them to maybe take a couple years off here and there between records, universally, all of them put in, it was their singular focus for a, a years, you know, a good chunk of their lives. Yeah, because, I mean, there's people that spend 14 hours a day, seven days a week, but then there's people who are outliers like Maurice White, who at 22, who wasn't even that good of a drummer, or seasoned of a drummer, I should say, who was able to play drums with Muddy Waters and then play drums on the Rolling Stones. And it seems like you were there was a certain luxury you were afforded if you were like an R&B musician with jazz chops back in the 70s. So I guess it depends on the era and kind of depends on who you are. I, d- I definitely think it does. And, and you know, I, I think that, you know, I read this really interesting book uh, recently called Range. And the, the author is escaping me right now. But in essence, it's like a, a counter uh, argument to the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours argument. Um, and it's all about how in our current economic and social landscape, having a broad range that is not hyper-specific and and hyper-specialized serves you better currently. And he runs through all these examples. Picasso is one of them. Um, But he runs through a number of examples of guys who basically fumbled around in their teens and 20s and sometimes even 30s and, and really didn't find any any uh, modicum of success until a, a, an age that most people would consider late in life, maybe even has-beens. And what they what he looks at is how they built this really wide palette 
of disciplines, and they never got really great at any one of them. Um, but because of that that range or breadth of of disciplines, it allowed them to see the field that they ended up in in a light that was, or you know, uh, have a perspective on it that was unlike anything else that existed in the field at the time. Well, maybe your desire to challenge the status quo was because you were observing a status quo that didn't include you and you got critical of it. That's part. There's a part of it. There was that definitely. And there was also a part of it that to me, it was kind of a win-win. I mean, this, this, this basic idea of challenging a status quo and trying to put a dent in the, in the armor of, of that, status quo that is part of it and then there's also part of it is to me that you know you look at the spirit of hip-hop music kind of the beauty of of it by and large is that it's 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 really the only art form that has insisted on consuming itself every two to three years i would argue you know i mean if you look at the at least from you know the early 80s up until early aughts, 2002, five, seven, I'd say it's around 2000, between 2007 and 2010. And I don't want this to turn into like a referendum on hip hop. Um, cause that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm merely current hip hop. I'm, I'm merely saying that like for a long time, that was the name of the game was you try to outdo the, 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 st- the status quo. You, you're, you, there's a, and I feel like in most, I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if it's there in other music music uh, musical genres or, or not. But it was it was an appeal. So does that make sense when I say it's a win win? It was kind of like well, either way, I'm you know it, there was two arguments for me, kind of saying, well, fuck it, let's just uh, you know let's try to break the mold of, of this thing. Yeah, I, I think you and LP kind of took that mentality and ran with it because y'all had a crowd and y'all had a scene that wasn't based on money. There was no independent labels yet that were making money collectively off of stuff that was bubbling on the underground. It was just a radio show and open mics. So you had this community of people getting up, trying to make their mark and trying to dazzle everybody. It was more of like a, a show improve mentality that seems to have gone away today. Absolutely. You know, I, I, the analogy that I, I think you could use is we were out, we were guys who were locked outside of a castle. And so at that point, <laughs> throwing rocks at the windows of the castle, there's no harm. You're like, fuck it. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> you know, uh, it's only until you are allowed entry into the, the, you know, the castle in this, using this analogy, do you even start thinking about, Oh, should I care about, the broken windows or not, you know, and up until then you're like, fuck it, you know? Well, how, how big, how big of an influence did Scribble Jam have on you? Cause that was like Ohio hip hop expo on crack. You know, it, I, to, it, it was, it was, it definitely was for me personally, the hip hop expo that was here in Columbus, Ohio was a bigger deal. Um, and the, and, and that, I, I don't mean to imply that it was more talent, or uh higher stakes or because because i'd say pound for pound it was it was a smaller talent pool you didn't have any of the national names that were coming through scribble but for me personally the reason that the expo was such a big deal here and to to back up just a moment for those who are listening that might not be aware uh, columbus ohio had it still actually has an annual thing they call the uh the ohio hip-hop expo and they would do it at the convention center every year and they would have battles. So this, this, you know, existed in the nineties. Uh, and I, to my knowledge is they're still doing it today. Um, but you know, they have DJ battles and empty battles and breakdance battles. 
and down in Cincinnati, they also had they had the basic and effectively the same thing, scribble jam. They would kind of piggyback performances of artists onto that as well. But nevertheless, the reason the expo was a bigger deal to me was that it was my own backyard. Everybody that was participating were at a point where, I mean, initially they weren't my peer sets because I hadn't built any kind of name, but I, through being a part of those DJ battles, that scene eventually did become my peer set. And so you can imagine how that would have, there's just a, a much higher stakes game when it's the, you know, you're, if you fuck up, you're shitting in your own backyard, you know, whereas with scribble, it was a little, it just felt a little bit more like, a really cool exclusive music festival. Yeah, I think former champs were like Sage Francis and Rhymefest. I don't I think Eminem was there but he didn't even come at first. Yeah. Yeah. Um idea uh, uh you know a blueprint w- would be in in the battles down. The bat- the MC battles were just savage. I mean, it was <laughs> it was <laughs> just an insane <laughs> talent pool there. You know the type of girl that walks in front of you and makes your jaw drop. She talks in riddles and sort of tickles your soft spot. Cause he's an asshole, but you know he got a nice sound. You know what else? What? You looking at him right now. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, why are they rapping? You know why? Cause I'm a big shot. Don't front, you know you love me. Girls I mean, it's really like, again, for those who didn't experience that time in history say what you will about eight mile the movie but for the uninitiated i do feel like it captured a a a good enough of a chunk of the intensity of two mcs going at it in the moment and what's on the line is respect you know the local respect within that scene and i can't overstate how big of a deal that that is i mean when when all you want and all you're working towards is to gain the respect of that community that that scene it becomes very high stakes but you you at the beginning you had no aspirations to be a dj were like in in the high school vocational high school days what was the goal then did you just want to be a musician or did you want to be like a sound engineer Oh, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and it, <laughs> with all due respect, I hope I don't sound like a contrarian saying this, but I it is 43 and a father uh, uh, of a, of a, you know, amazing little boy. I hate that question. Like I, I hate the, the, the basic premise of the idea of what do you want to be when you're 15, 16, 17, 18? I kind of hate it because it made me it filled me with despair. I didn't know what I wanted to do there. I knew what I liked, you know, <laughs> and, and basically I knew what moved me and, and uh, to be totally honest, what I want, what I wanted to do, I didn't even put a lot of thought in, p- into because I, what I just wanted to be involved with music. And it seemed like such a moonshot that my plan was to be a math teacher. Cause I've always, you know, excelled at, at mathematics so that was what I was going to do. And then I was going to find some way to have fun with music on the side. See, I thought you'd be like a mechanic uh, with your love of <laughs> classic cars and all. You know, that, that only came, came later. It's only been in the last, you know, uh, six years or so. But, um, so yeah, I, you know, I loved music and, and again, I didn't, I grew up in an environment where 
I was exposed to rap music from the kids in my neighborhood, you know, the, the uh, folks in my immediate surroundings, but my, my parents were, they were performers. So I was getting expo- exposed to, you know, craft work and Philip glass and uh, just all different types of shit. And, you know, I had friends that were into classic rock and I had friends that were listening to, you know, run DMC and the like, and I didn't really make much out of it. I, to me, there was just, there was exciting music and there wasn't, there was, there's stuff I liked and stuff I didn't, you know, and sometimes that was Depeche Mode. Sometimes it was Tears for Fears and sometimes it was UTFO or Houdini. And sometimes it was Sabbath or Hendrix or, or whatever. I found myself in a vocational music school because it was really the closest thing I could get to any kind of mentorship or education around music. At that time, there was no such thing. Even I would, I would say that the, it was hard to find like OG slash mentor type guys in the hip hop scene. Um, so I didn't even know how to go about understanding how a rap record was made. You know, I was always, I was fascinated by how rap records sounded. You know, I'd listen to something like the, uh, you know, public enemy record and be like, I don't, I don't understand how this is made. It makes no sense to me. And it's unlike anything I've ever heard. We go right now, keep the bass with our brothers and I don't know what goes on. What goes on? Well, well. Yeah, put it up on the board, another rapper shot down from the mouth and roar. One, two, three, down for the count to be solo. My lyrics, oh yes, no doubt. So when I finally got a chance to get exposed to the local hip hop scene, Uh, through a, f- a friend of mine, he started taking me out to the battles at this uh, this place called the Groove Shack, and they would they would have DJ battles. You know, for the most part, it was MC battles, but they would periodically have DJs that were like really really fucking good. And then there's the expo. He's just started taking me around and saying, "This is what this looks like on a you know a, a, a granular local level," and I was totally captivated. And at that point in time, I fell into hip hop. I think part of what made me just jump in with both feet was that I had, you know, I'd gone through the the vocational music program, and I kind of hated it. I, I I wasn't, you know, I was for the most part studying jazz guitar, and I just wasn't good enough to really. There's already guys in the program that were. It was obvious they were going to be much better than me. You know, they had a shot. I didn't really have a shot <laughs> as a jazz guitarist. So in, in hip hop was this thing where it was like. It was just the the polar opposite of that experience of the the music school. So I just jumped in with both feet, and I, I didn't really pick up a, a real instrument from maybe the time I was I graduated from high school. By then, I you know I'd gotten really that was what I wanted to do was just the DJing much more than I than the you know playing live music. I think it was probably till I was maybe like twenty four twenty five ish that I even thought about getting a traditional instrument. That's interesting. And you, you mentioned UTFO. Is anyone creating esoteric hip hop nowadays that's having that same effect on you? Um, uh, you know, I would, I would consider homeboy Sandman, uh, esoteric. It's been a rough year for, for new music for me, but nevertheless, to answer your question, it's, um, you know, I consider him, uh, an exciting new rapper. I think open Mike Eagle also falls into that category. I hear some, you know, there's, there's times at which there's things that pop up on the radio that have kind of like a surrealism to them. 
even if I might not love the song, but I do feel like hip hop culture as a whole has embraced a bit more of the esoteric and surreal and weird, even on the like top 40 level, maybe not enough for my tastes, but I feel like there's, there's, there's a little bit of that. It does. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, once upon a time, you you thought that, I guess vinyl would die with your generation in terms of collecting, but I think you were smart enough to see a slight resurgence when you released Dead Ringer on Yellow, uh, since we last spoke on Blue, the Horror on Clear. So it, it, I, I don't know. For someone who has such a long career in music, it's almost like you kind of have tunnel vision. But also as a label owner, you kind of have to keep up with consumerism as well. It must be a fine line. It is a fine line. Um, you know, I wanted to do the. <laughs> This is so so lame, but I honestly wanted to do the colored vinyl runs of those records so I could have a colored. Oh, you collect your own records? <laughs> yeah, as silly as it may seem, awesome. I you know I was kind of like, well, you know, there wasn't, uh, you know, because there's up up charges for manufacturing and, and and the like, running a label as well as being you know on the creative side. At the end of the day, I absolutely think it's a net win, but does it? Uh, it can definitely pull at your time management ability. And do I always want to be doing label shit? Not necessarily, but in the aggregate, what I have found is that there's a sense of empowerment that comes with running your, your own label uh, when you're also the artist that's making the records over the last 10 years, I've, acclimated to the mindset that it's pretty much, I can do whatever the fuck I want. You know, if I want to do a seven inch, I do a seven inch. And if I don't, I don't, if I want to, you know, and and that will reduce down to a place where I won't even think twice about putting out something like a side project, like the insane warrior, knowing that I'm not gonna probably make much money. If it, if anyone that, last record may or may not be in the in the black i don't know and i frankly it doesn't matter i don't care because <laughs> you know I, I i cross collateralize everything against everything else since i'm you know in essence the only artist on the label so i don't really as long as the label as a whole is in the black which it is then i don't need to I, I, not just worry i don't need to think about is this a smart move is this a strategic move i don't give a fuck because the side side project type records could be very if you're in a contract that can be a, a paperwork nightmare really well so do you care like when you get approached for Mad Men, do you care about the synchronization fees do you care about the royalties do, do you care about that or you just want to attach your music to to quality shows quality music with quality shows <laughs> as somebody that's got a family to feed i would be lying if i said that i didn't have to think about the financial side of being a professional music producer but again the beauty of all of doing all of these things you know touring and the label and controlling my own publishing and licensing and remixes and so on and so forth it, it allows me the freedom to not i i don't i'm not paralyzed by stress when something comes in that might be a lot of money for a cause or project that I don't support or want to be associated with, you know, I'm, I, I'm comfortable saying no when it's appropriate. 
Yeah, because uh, Queen came out with We Are the Champions 42 years ago, and I, I guarantee you they share the same mindset where they don't care what their best or biggest song is. But 40 years later, 40 years later, their turnover royalties rose by $8 million to $25 million, which is amazing. And that's something, you know, if you got kids, imagine your son is 47 years old, and he's now able to have generational wealth from a song you made. 40 years in, in the past. I think that's a very smart business decision that a lot of musicians, they only think about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And they don't realize that, hey, royalties can equal life security. But you bring up an interesting point, which is that song, I'm not fully convinced that when they wrote that song, they really thought or knew that it was going to be the licensing and public performance juggernaut that it became. And in my experience, it's 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 a bit, it's hard to, I don't see a lot of people doing a calculated effort to make a song that's going to work in the sync world and then, and then have it work in the sync world. <laughs> you know, I, I was at uh, Jamie Lydell's house uh, over the weekend. I, before Dallas, I was in Nashville and we were talking about this because <laughs> sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll demo on things for, for ad spots or something if it seems like a cool spot and it's fun and just, you know, there's a time where sometimes you're just like, eh, let me, let me give this a shot just to kind of do something different, you know? And we were both talking about that and and we were kind of like discussing how it's common to demo on a thing and not land it. And after having that, those experiences enough times, there's a, I kind of arrived at this thing where it's kind of, it, it feels like the way to really land a thing is in the licensing and licensing world is just to, you got to just make a, a, a record that you like and hope that you get lucky. I honestly think that statistically that is the best chance that any artist has in the sync world. But there's something funny that you said where like, you know, you can learn instruments in your twenties and it's okay, but to be an adequate rapper, you have to start at like the lunchroom table in middle school. That's not something that you can do in your twenties and thirties. You don't see it done. You're right. I, but I don't, I don't believe that, that it, it, we, you're right that we, we haven't seen it done, <clears throat> but I, I don't know if that is more attributed to the nature of rapping and the, and the role that it plays culturally or, or something specific to the discipline itself of rapping. So in other words, hip hop is kind of a young man's game. I, I don't, I'm not convinced that developing really complex rhyme schemes is you, you, you lose your ability to do that at the age of 22 or 25 or even 30 or something like that. My hunch is that it's more, or uh, it's more that culturally hip hop is just a, a 25, 28. Nowadays, my understanding is that that's old for top 40 rappers, you know, for sure. So do you find your, your son uh, leaning more towards music or maybe the varsity soccer route, which, which way is he kind of leaning? <laughs> uh, it's funny. You say varsity soccer. We were just talking <laughs> about, I was talking about soccer with him today. He's, he's much more into music, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm trying to convince him like, Hey, you know, have a, you know, maybe try, what do you think about trying out for a team? And not cause I want him to be, I, I could care less if he's good at sports or, or anything like that. But, you know, I, I did play um, sports. In fact, I was I, pl- I play a lot of pickup soccer. I played played pickup today in the afternoon. And I found that there's a 
you know, there's an experience and an enjoyment to a, a, a team game that you, it's really, you, you basically can't get it in a solo endeavor. You can't get it bowling, you know, nothing against bowling. I'm just saying. So yeah, my kid's like super into music, man. It's rad. Like it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, there's nothing like it. You know, I don't, I don't need to, for any parent out there, they're probably just like, yeah, of course, shut the fuck up, dude. Everybody thinks this. <laughs> their own kid. And they do, and they should. But it, it really is just amazing to see a, how a young mind, you know, absorb and learn and progress with his interest to music. It's just the most fascinating thing in the world to see. Have you taken him to the Center of Science and Industry yet? Yeah, he, he likes it. Um, we've been to Kosai a, 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 a zillion times. There's always something. I think it's, it's about to be gentrified. I think they're throwing $40 million to turn it into a, a shopping mall. They're going to put restaurants and retail shops. And You're kidding me. Yeah, it's, they're, they're going to carve it up. They're carving it up. Whoa. Wait, sorry. I, I, this is a forgive my ignorance. You know enough about Columbus. that Are you, are you from here? I'm not. I'm just uh, uh, in honor of having you here. I've done a bit of research, if you don't mind. No, no, I don't mind at all. You've done a lot of research. You're, you're damn near talking like a local, so I just had to ask. Sorry. No, I just I, I find it that it was a staple of either your childhood and something that the next generation can enjoy. Instead, they're going to throw forty million dollars at it to expand it. If you haven't bring bring your kids there, do it now. Well, I have. Yeah, seeing seeing your kid, you know, is a. It's just unbelievable, man. It's like. He was a uh, he was listening to a Sabbath song, and this was young, and he was like maybe four, five years old. He'd go through these periods where he's obsessed with different stuff, and he's obsessed with Sabbath. I'll tell this one stupid story, and then I'll shut up about my kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> go for it. But there was a you know there was a all the Sabbath riffs are basically like it's just pentatonic scales, and there was one, but they have some interesting changes, and you know they have like B and C and D sections in their songs and stuff. And I can't remember what the name of the song was, uh, but it had a tritone, which is like, or like a, like a, a flat fifth chord in it. And everything's just a power chord in the Sabbath shit. But he would, he would point out, it would only happen at like three minutes and 48 seconds into the song. And he would sit there for like the whole song. He'd be like, there's this really weird chord in the song, dad. Or the, I don't even know if he called it a chord. He was like, I think he did. And he just sat there and he waited for this one chord to come. And then, and it comes and he's like, right there. That's the weird chord, Dad. And I was like, oh, my fucking God. This is amazing. <laughs> he's got the ear. Yeah, it's so cool. So, anyway. Yeah, man. I, I, I like appreciation for stuff like this. Uh, you, you actually turned me on to a Michael Lewis book. Because when I think of technology, sometimes I get fascinated but but worried like how – uh, I, I know we're going to go off topic, but how really? technology. Hey, that's fine. I love, I'll talk books all day, dude. Go for it, please. Uh, I, I like tech dominates music, but it also dominates like modern trading, whether it's through uh, trading algorithms or transmission speeds. It's all one big arms race trying to find an edge. Sure. And you turned me on to this high frequency trading. It was such a crazy business. Uh, all these huge pots of money that people are playing with and they're in their own universe. Kind of like your son listening to this. I would never have picked out that chord. I almost couldn't believe the part about the cross country cable. It's nuts, right? That these people constructed to shave off just a few seconds. Yeah. It's really nuts. It was such a huge expensive undertaking just for a few seconds. And they don't, you know, they don't really hurt the average Joe per se. The problem is more that they're allowed to benefit without risk from what is essentially a flaw in the markets. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean it's 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 all automated anyway. You know, it's it's uh, uh, computers driving that trading. But yeah, it's a it's a mad world. That guy is a, yeah, Michael Lewis is he's one of my favorite authors. That um, I will say, if you, I don't think he's written a bad book. So you could go all the way down the rabbit hole, read every single book he's ever read, and my, for my money, there's something that's as interesting as that anecdote if not very close in every single one of his books. Yeah. I say when the new album's done and, and if you tore or not a, a rambles book club would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I'll, I will give you the floor to kind of talk about the new music. Cause that is why we're here. So yeah, new record. Uh, it's called the fun ones coming out in April of 2020. This was the first record that I had made probably ever in which I really threw my concern for, showing my range out the window. So the title is derived from a literal track selection process. You know, every time I make a record, I'll record as much as I can and then I'll edit it down. You know, to me, the most important part of making records is the songs you leave off. If you're putting every single song that you make on an album and you're making a great album, your name's either Nas or Q-Tip. Basically, I mean, nobody else is really has that capability. You know, I certainly don't. So editing is kind of the at the heart of the process. And when I was doing this, there's a number of ways when you sit with a batch of 20 or 25 songs, you realize that you can tell a number of different stories depending on that track selection, especially with a guy like me. It's like I'm making weird shit. Some of the songs are like 45 seconds. Some of them are long. Some of them are fast, slow, so, so on and so forth. But I, you know, I put together this playlist and it was, it disregarded this idea of like trying to sell myself as an artist with range. I was, my only criteria was which are the songs that have kind of an immediacy to them or which ones are fun to listen to. And that's why literally I called it the fun ones because this is just the batch that was the fun ones <laughs> to me. It's got, uh, STS and Kari Mateen and homeboy Sandman and Jordan Brown and AC alone on it. And I think those are all of the guest list, uh, the guest, those are all the guest vocalists. Um, I had horn and string work, hired out. And then for the most part, it's, you know, there's a few things that are, that are MPC sample based. Uh, but for the most part, it's a, it's a, it's a live funk record in essence. And since now you've, you've lived through multiple eras of the music industry, you have more inertia in your career than ever before. And I know you don't like doing the same sounding album twice. So I'm very excited. I'm sure uh, it's going to be well received. I don't know about that. <laughs> you might be sure I'm not. Well, it's the fun ones. How can you not? You, how can you not enjoy the album if it's called that? I mean, that's its intention. So it's it's almost you know Hopefully. guaranteed. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, it's de- it's definitely not a record that I would say. Yeah, I would like to th- say that if anybody's any listeners that are familiar with records that I've made in the past, there should be something to enjoy there. I would think. Are we going to get a little Fonte or was he too busy with little brother this year? I should tell kind of the second story of this and um, the story behind once the songs were done, there's, you know, I finished the record and mastered it, the songs themselves in July. And I didn't actually complete both 
iterations of the album until maybe about three weeks ago. Because I, I got this kind of harebrained idea where I wanted to record all the songs and then master the songs and then sit with those songs and treat them like they were a mixtape. And instead of using like vocal interludes that would be from a Richard Pryor record or, you know, whatever, a, a Red Fox record or something like, you know, stuff that I effectively can't go jack big portions of, I was like, why don't I make audio sources myself that I can use as, you know, snippets for between songs to kind of, you know, weave the entire record together. And so what I did is I started calling friends and, and, and peers and such that kind of exist at a similar station in life to where I am. You know, they're grown folks, they got kids, they've been in it for a while. And, you know, for me, there was this, this is ironically going to bring this conversation slightly full circle to the, the phase two uh, discussion we had earlier. You know, at this point in my life, I, I have to ask myself, why am I still making records? Um, not because I don't want to make records, but there's, you know, there's this kind of compulsion for, for me, I have this compulsion to, to make art and put it into the world. And, and part of this making this record for me was examining really why that was, you know, for the longest time I would kind of lump together the life purpose thing with the financial thing and, and not really parse those two things out and figure out, how much of it it was one and how much of it I was just like, well, I, I got to pay my bills and I got to make music. So what I'm actually going to do, I'm, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the why I'm just doing what I'm doing. You know what I mean? It might sound silly, but I literally, you know, I've, I've been asking myself part of the last year or two was me asking myself, like, really, why is that? And I, I, I opened that question up to some other folks, you know, for me, it really does. A big part of it is it's like, I mean, it's, it's soothing. It gives me purpose. It gives me satisfaction. It's infinitely challenging and fascinating and fun and interesting and engaging. But there's also this part of it that's like, well, this is the record that I'm going to leave behind. I mean, we never know when we're, you know, when our, when our time is up on, on this earth. So, you know, the idea of, I've realized that I can make a connection with infinitely more people doing what I'm doing now than if I was a bank teller or a manager at an insurance company or, and this is no slight, but even if I had chosen the path of being a math teacher, you know, I'd be impacting 10, 15, 20 kids at a time. I have the, the, the wonderful opportunity with the music career that I've built to ha make a connection with m many more people than that, you know? So anyway, I opened this question up to basically my friends and started asking them these, you know, wh why are you still doing this? And just getting into it. And I would record the conversations. Those conversations became the fodder for those interludes and such. So the, the, the vinyl version and the digital version of the record played differently. The vinyl, I wanted to give people the opportunity to listen to the record in either iteration, you know, just the songs, just the compositions themselves with silence in between, but then in essence, like a mixtape version of the same record that is woven together with 
snippets and such from talking to people. Um, so that's how the, the digital and the CD version play more like a mixtape. Why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning this because Fonte is one of the people that I talked to were Fonte and Kid Koala. Mr. Liff uh, was on there. Blueprint helped out. So those are the people that I, I got audio snippets from. Cadillacs keep rolling either way. That is great. Yeah, for sure, man. Definitely. All right, man. Well, 2020 is going to be a big year for you. I really appreciate you because, I mean, at this point, when we're talking about legacy building, you probably can cherry pick any outlet you want, but you came on my show. And, man, thank you for being here. And tonight, I just want to wish you the best night of sleep you've ever had. Brother, thank you so much, man. And I appreciate the kind words, man. It, It really does mean a lot. You know, I don't always... I'm the kind of guy it's a little hard to pat myself on the back. So your kind words are, are, are very appreciated. Thank you, sir.